first to say that I have no idea why we had to do that. She's <laughs> sales reckons that that piece of music will become massively it's meaningful. very important. It is going later. to become very meaningful to everyone in the auditorium but later. Backstage, we just, like, seriously, about 120 seconds ago, otherwise known as two minutes, it occurs to me, um, we had to Google Ibiza dance moves. <laughs> <laughs> and Krabs, Krabs pulled up like a five minute Ibiza dance moves tutorial, <laughs> and Gwen, who was with us, said, Is there really time for this? <laughs> And Miranda's backstage, she goes, you can, you can actually forward to the bit where it actually does dance moves and they get past. It's like reading recipes online where it's like, I looked out my window and full of crab apples. And like, it really takes me back to life with my grandmother. And you're like, where is the recipe? Um, and I know why that that happens. And it's lovely to read all those things. But also with the Ibiza dance moves, you really want to crack on to the actual dance moves. And so that is what we came up with at short notice. And... Apparently, that will make massive sense uh, imminently. Uh, it's great to be back in Melbourne. Yeah. And we, we only just realised that it's also the Melbourne Fringe Festival. I mean, I don't know if there'd be anything edgier on in Melbourne tonight than a couple of middle-aged ladies in Spanx yeah. taking to the stage, oh, doing yeah. their Ibiza dance moves. Very, very edgy. Also, because I think, look, this show has been scheduled, and it has been cancelled, and it has been rescheduled, and it has been cancelled a number of times. So in the end, we're just like, ah, oh, yeah, oh, pick a date. It'll never happen anyway, right? <laughs> and now we're like, oh, we're here uh, at the same time as the spring racing carnival, and um, also lovely sunshine, oh. and the fringe. So, I mean, thank you all for just coming along, because really, there are other things you could be doing. <laughs> Do you know what, too? I will let you in on a little secret, which was we were supposed to come... Was it uh, last year or 2020? I can't remember the year our book it's came all out. all a blur. Whatever the year was that Well Hello came out and we had organised for the great Shane Warne to be with us on stage. I know. And it still remains, I think, one of my favourite moments ever was when we did the Melbourne Live show and re recreated Warney taking his 700th wicket at the MCG and got the crowd to react like that had actually occurred so we could hear the sound of what it sounds like when thousands of people... This Lose was, it. as you may recall, an event with which Lisa Hales had only very recently acquainted herself. <laughs> so uh, when she did her signature two-part series interview with Shane Warne, one of the moments at which uh, anyone who knows Lee actually screamed at the television in frustration and outrage <laughs> was when she said something to him like, and, and who can forget that moment uh, where you <laughs> captured your 700th wicked? We're all just like, oh, you fraud! <laughs> dance moves. <laughs> but there was no doubt about the chemistry that you had with that great man. And one of the things that I really liked about your subsequent relationship was that, because you were both on book tour we were. at the same time, um, not long after that, and by that stage you were in a texting relationship, which is, you know, not always well, been wise. I can't claim <laughs> it was exclusive, that's for sure. <laughs> and... 
You used to have competitions about how quickly you could sign books, right? Yeah, because, I mean, obviously, Warney was a competitive person and um, we would be, you know, at places like Booktopia where you'd be having to sign, like, you know, heaps of copies of, of books. And so Warney would say, I've done, you know, 400 in an hour and a half or whatever. And so then I'd be at Booktopia going, all right, well, we have to do more than 400 in an hour and a half. So you people, you stand there, you stand there. <laughs> we'd be just getting through as quick as we could. So if anybody bought a lovely signed copy of <laughs> Any Ordinary Day. You're like, bluh, bluh, bluh. that is Warney's fault. So, you know, yeah. Um, it, that reminds me too that, uh, speaking of sporting icons that I love, anyone who listens to the podcast would know that I listened to, uh, watched The Last Dance, the Netflix, um, yeah, I just can see everyone going, oh, God. <laughs> So I, I'm going to rip her off this tear. I'm going to give her a little minute and then I'm going to make it stop. So you everyone, go. Everyone will be going, please. Just know it's not forever. Could you but. go back to the Ibiza dance moves, please? Um, we just got back from a road trip with our families. Spring break! In WA. And um, we met Luke Longley the basketball player who was uh, on the Chicago Bulls team that won the three NBA titles and he was... It makes it sound like it's accidental but actually we cyber-nagged him into meeting us <laughs> and he was too nice to say no. Anyway, he, he came on stage in the Albany show because he has a property in that region and um, so that episode will come out I think soon, you'll be able to listen to it but we got to meet Luke who was just the loveliest man and he was really funny as well, didn't you think? He was great. He was extremely funny and very sharp and um, like um, absolutely owned both of us a couple of times. He did. Yeah. Me when I asked a typically meandering question that was just like my opinion on something plus stray thought, shopping list and then <laughs> <laughs> he just paused and said and how would you like me to ask? <laughs> yeah. But then I was, just after that, I was relieved when you asked, um, so Luke, um, are you good at other ball sports? <laughs> or some sort like, of, I, I mean, was like, are you good at all things that involve hand-eye coordination? He looked at like, me just like, Oh, anyway, like, <laughs> anyway, I'm happy to report though that he did say because you know I was in love with Phil Jackson, the coach. Um, he, Phil Jackson, genuinely is a great man, so that was very lovely to hear. One of the funniest moments with Luke Longley was we were chatting, and my uh, the kids obviously were just thrilled to meet him because he was the biggest person they've ever seen in their lives. So they found that just so exciting. And my little eight year old was. <laughs> I'm talking to Luke and, and James is going, excuse me, mum, excuse me, mum, excuse me, mum, excuse me, mum. And Luke just like reached his arm over me, picked up James with one arm, <laughs> twisted him over onto the ground, kicked off his thongs and then held him on the ground with both feet, each, each of which were as big as James's entire torso. <laughs> James was like helpless with laughter. And so Luke's just like this and then he goes, sorry, what are you saying? <laughs> it was um, gold. We had the greatest time in WA though. Like I'm not going to go oh. on and on and on about it, but like highlights do include sales's like violent gastro attack just before we left, which did put a bit of a crimp on things. Um, it did. And, right? You know, because we do have a bit of a discussion before each show about like what music we're going to come on to. And um, she was so crook and squirty when we were going on stage <laughs> in Perth. She's like, what music? I'm like, anything by Hot Chocolate Love. And uh, so, 
She just came out and lay down. We had a like little sofa because she was so unwell. We've, we've got this photo as well that um, just makes me laugh so much, which was we had to hit the road pretty early the next morning to be able to make the you know five-ish hour road yeah. trip to Albany. For context, we're in a modestly sized car. Um, me, Gwen, Lee, on, a, on the clock to get to Albany, which is a big drive from Perth. Sales has brought, despite her affliction, her cello <laughs> with her because she's been practicing and she's acquired calluses and doesn't want to sacrifice the calluses in any way. So Gwen and I have to nurse, aka spoon, this damn cello the whole way to Albany. Look, two things. We actually put the cello in the front seat and they had to sit in the back. And Much so better. we've got seriously and we've got this great photo and so what you can kind of see is me I'm taking a selfie just before we set out so I'm in the driver's seat the two of them are in the back you can see a hint of the cello and then in the middle you can see a toilet roll and a banana because <laughs> they saw something on the internet about how bananas bind you up they do apparently they do but anyway but uh yeah it was that was a really fun um trip very but, fun trip um Two um, items of business arising from this before we move on. Um, actually, one. I forgot the other one, but it'll come to me. Um, one is this cello. Oh, my God. So it has to play the cello every day, apparently. So <laughs> we are in Albany, beautiful town, lovely arts centre, had a ball. And um, we're staying in this Airbnb, two houses next to each other because we've got the full kind of Griswold family, you know, contingent. And um, Jeremy, who's rented both of the places, gets this snippy message uh, on the morning of the public holiday, which is the Monday. WA is that weird thing where they've got Queen's death morning on Friday, a Thursday, Queen's birthday on Monday. <laughs> Quick turnaround. So it's like a real whiplash of emotion. But so on the Monday morning, Jeremy gets this email from the Airbnb person saying, well, a bit rude to be playing loud music at this time on a public holiday morning, getting a lot of complaints from the neighbours, try to be a bit more considerate. And we're thinking, far out, man, we're a bit of nine. Like, I went, what? No one's playing that. Oh. <laughs> sure enough. It was me doing cello scales, apparently. They were friends. She's on the tools at 6.30am. We, we got complaints about me being on the tools. So, yeah, that was kind of discouraging. Yeah. <laughs> I let Murph know and she's like, ooh, she must be still really shit then, mustn't she? <laughs> <laughs> Look, chances are yes. Anyway, no, I've heard it. You sound all right. Oh. 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 <laughs> right, that leads me to my, another, my other bit of business arising. One thing that I noticed um, after spending a week, actually early on, I noticed it on stage when you weren't even on your, at your full powers, I was telling you this long and typically convoluted story about a Perth experimental theatre company that I'd watched a documentary about, mm. and you, you were looking at me with that face. Because it's like mm. very kind of improv, just like let's, you know, unroll some velvet and see what happens kind of thing. And um, I was like, God, it was a fantastic film. I loved it. I just really want to see this film, this company. Um, they're called The Last Great Hunt, by the way. Do look out for them because they're terrific. And as I was explaining it, she kept making this noise. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and then I thought, you make that noise all the time and it means I'm so unsure about what you're saying right now, <laughs> but I'm making a noise, just any kind of noise to sort of 
fulfil my obligation to be part of a conversation <laughs> whilst absolutely semaphoring my deep suspicion about everything you stand for. Right. Anyway, so I called it out, because you call it out when you see it, right? So I called it out on the stage. I'm like, what's that noise? You always make that noise. You make it now. Oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then, because the kids were all backstage, so they heard it, and for the rest of the holiday, <laughs> everyone was just making that noise. And, and, now, and then every time I would do it, like the chorus of like everyone would go, ah! So I did actually capture some audio of this, which I think Duncan might have the sound file and be able kindly to play for us. Possibly. And this is what has happened ever since it was pointed out that Lee makes a noise like, ow! when she's unsure about something. Children, take it away. Thank you so much, Annabelle, for teaching my children that. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome, friend. <laughs> I was captured in the car. Well, yeah, they're all nestled around the cello, obviously. But they just sound like this fleet of angry penguins. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. They do it all the time now to me as well. So I'll go, oh. and the kids, ow, ow. So yes, very, um, very upsetting. Now, um, before we go on, um, just wanted to mention our charity that we always support in Melbourne, which is the Royal Children's Hospital, in particular the bum unit. Um, our friends over there, um, everyone who's... Everyone who works in health has had a pretty rough um, few years, so we're particularly happy to be able to um, sling some money their way. Um, and we've had already a fantastic time in Melbourne because we went to Cyrano last night uh, to see our friend Virginia Gay. Have many people been to that? Yeah. So good. Yeah, it was great. That woman is a... She is. I quite agree. I mean, she wrote it and stars in it. She's Cyrano. She wrote it. She starred in it. I'm yet to find anything that that woman is bad at. So I feel like in order for us to continue admiring and liking her, we need to find something that she's just <laughs> shockingly bad at. It was really interesting talking to her later too, because she'd watched, I think she said, how many adaptations? 15. Yeah. 15 different Cyrano's. To, to kind of let it marinate and think through, like, you know, what is a contemporary kind of thing? And, and what she'd settled on is what you are, what you feel that you're worthy of receiving as love. And so it had kind of been adapted. So the reason she feels that she's not worthy of Roxanne's love other than that she's just, you know, physically got the big nose and blah, 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 um, is that in this telling Cyrano is a woman. So she thinks that Roxanne is straight, so she's not worthy of her love and that she wouldn't be interested in her. And so it kind of goes from there. But there were some really amazing devices in it. One, one that I absolutely loved was when Roxanne enters for the first time, she comes in on roller skates and it, so it puts you in mind of Xanadu and it's really ethereal and beautiful. And Roxanne's gorgeous, so there's just this sort of gorgeousness yeah. skating around in this dry ice. Yeah, and it really gives magical. a magical kind of sense of this figure of Roxanne. Um, yeah, it was yeah, really it's interesting that, I mean, the script maintains this whole Cyrano has a giant nose kind of thing and there's a series of nose jokes and also a very, very strong series of collective noun references and anyone who's interested in collective nouns, I mean, Ginny's senior absolutely right. There's a lot of that going on, um, so that's very satisfying. Um, and there's a lot of pedantry as well, which makes me very happy. Um, <laughs> but so in the script, she's left in 
the references and maintain this idea that Cyrano has this comedically large nose, which of course Virginia Gay doesn't. But it's kind of a um, an emblem, really, about being having feeling like you have the wrong body for somebody to love. And actually, it's not necessarily about being a big having a big nose. It's you know most of us have a weird you know insecurity about our bodies in some way. And in this case, she's given it a queer retelling, which just is somebody assuming that because I have this body, I'm incapable of being loved by you. So it's, it's a very clever and beautiful retelling of an often told tale. And also I liked um, one of the points that's made is because if you remember the story of Cyrano, which actually I'd kind of forgotten, but it's basically that... Guy with big nose, falls in love with woman, hot stuff guy comes along, thick as mints. Um, <laughs> Cyrano stands behind him and says all the words and, you know, yep. hilarity ensues. Um, so uh, one of the things that Roxanne says when it's exposed that Cyrano is actually, you know, the person that she's kind of in love with because it's Cyrano's words going through the buffoon. It, she hot says... Buffoon. She basically says, you have robbed me of my agency because you take me for an idiot because you basically think that I'm incapable of actually loving someone based on more than, you know, just physical appearance. And so that was actually really well done too. There was a couple of really brilliant monologues as well that Virginia delivers, one of which is about um, feeling like, you know, yeah, I could, someone could love me and then it sort of culminates in her saying, and then you catch a side of your reflection in a shopping centre mirror and you realise, oh, no, that's not for me kind of thing. And it's really packs a, you know, big, big punch. So it was great. It does pack a big punch. There's a lot of um, emotional range. It's very, very funny. Um, there's some singing. There's a lot of tinsel towards the end. I'm not going to spoil it. Also, but, like, anyway, it's superb. It was a packed house. So, obviously, everybody's going nuts for it, which is yes. great, because, of course, last time it was on stage, it made it to preview and then got cancelled on opening night for, oh, you yeah. know, for reasons we don't talk about anymore. <laughs> reason, but, like, yeah, it was particularly beautiful to see that remounted, back with a vengeance and such a fulfilling night out. And, of course, because Virginia Gay is good at everything, the finale of the Savage River television drama that she's in is on tomorrow night as well. <laughs> so, like, people who are good at everything. Oh, hey, we forgot to say, too, um, just while we were talking about seven-foot-two man who can pick up children with a single, you know, index finger, old Luke Longley is here tomorrow night. So he's doing, a, actually, a speaking, he's a speaking tour. He's speaking yeah. Because after that Australian story that he did, people just went, oh, my God, you're adorable. We love you. Yeah. So he's been, he's been nagged out of retirement because he's yeah. been like, oh, you're so interesting and adorable. Come and do a speaking tour. He's like, I don't really want to. Come on. So, yeah, he's at the forum tomorrow night. And, yeah, um, definitely worth going. He's got he's very interesting. Very, very good anecdotes he and does. a very funny and smart dude. Speaking of stuff that's on, because we're spoiled for choice at the moment, so the hottest selling ticket in the Fringe Festival I went to watch a rehearsal of yesterday, which is a show called Darling Boy. It's a young guy called Rupert Bevan, who, so it's a single person show. I hate to even say it's a single man show, because when you, when you watch a rehearsal for something, you realise how many people are actually involved in making it work. And so it was really interesting. So it's basically a coming of age story about a young a guy who's in his case growing up in regional Queensland he's gay he feels like he doesn't fit in the gay community feels like he doesn't fit in the broader community doesn't kind of know what he's doing he's just awkward and, and struggling and so it's kind of about loneliness and family and acceptance and so on 
But so the bit that I was watching, it was really fantastic. He's in a club and he was kind of bumping into people, but it's just him on stage. Should have Googled the Ibiza dance moves. <laughs> just saying. Um, and he's having a bad kind of time, and, but he's doing it all himself. But amazingly, so there was a, the people that were there were Lucy, who was the director, and then there was um, a person who was doing lighting and a woman who was doing sa- the sound cues. And there was something like... 138 sound cues in the hour and a half. Whatever it was worked out to be about three sound things to be triggered a minute. And it's all like clockwork that he's... Because he's kind of interacting himself with the sound as it's going. And then same with the lighting cues as well. There were fewer lighting cues, but there were still a ton of lighting cues. And so when I was watching the rehearsal, they were navigating... Okay, well, this he was sending text messages and they were saying, well, what, what's the gap between the whoop, whoop, whoop of the send sound? And so they were rehearsing that to make it kind of fit and he was explaining to the person, you know, with whom he was doing the dance on the sound desk, like, oh, when I do this, that's the moment to play the first one. And so just thinking of how many, you know, how on the ball the person at the back had to be to make it work seamlessly it was incredible. Is this why you were in such a puddle of self-loathing backstage? Because all we do is just bullshit on. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's no... Yes. There's like... Yeah, I know. But we've got one sound cue, and that was the one you just got Duncan to do before. It was seamless, right? <laughs> seamless, though. But Duncan was, was coiled was like a spring. That was rehearsed up the like, Duncan was coiled Dun- there like... Like that, like that. <laughs> <laughs> we've been here all day. <laughs> He has nailed that sound cue. Um, so what happens? So this is this is just a so, sort of reflect, like so. So he's he's, he's doing all telling. The it's a narrative, right? So he's he's kind of acting out the story of this, you know, period of his life, basically this one guy. And so it was just fascinating watching because you know, when you watch something, say like Cyrano, you don't, and, and you're watching the fully realised production, you don't think that much about all of the choices that have gone into it and the the effort that it's taken to, say, for example, coordinate that moment when Roxanne roller skates on that she doesn't accidentally just roller skate off the other side or she doesn't accidentally roller skate off the stage, like all of the things you have to do to make that work. But watching a rehearsal, of course, you're seeing all of the, you know, stitching exposed. So that was really fascinating. Anyway, it's... And one it's of the been... unfair things is you only really even notice those things when they go wrong, right? Exactly. Like, so the better you are at your job, the easier it looks and the That's less... Right work people assume that you do <laughs> and so um Rupert, you're like that too on 7 30 like you know I often think that people what are you she's about to go ow I mean, <laughs> no 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 but I mean it's incredibly hard to interview somebody live on air for seven minutes for oh instant, yeah sure instance yeah and you have to do a huge amount of work to make that even look moderately yeah. okay, but because if you make it look easy, people assume it's oh, easy, right? I, I, I apply the rule of thumb these days. Are you missing that, days. by the way? What is that? Are you missing that, by the way? Uh, no. <laughs> not even remotely. I'm, like, I'm having a ball, not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> just gone through Death of the Queen and Scott Morrison Five Jobs, still not missing it. No. <laughs> just I've never been in. happier than on the day, well, I was about to say, but I'll just rephrase it. <laughs> Wow. Just saved that, didn't I? On the day the Queen died, comma, I felt relieved to not be at work. And that was a faint pulse beside your general morass of grief about (laughs) the significance of the passing of this iconic woman. And we all feel that way. But But we understand what you mean. (laughs) Anyway, um, so 
Yeah, Darling Boy. And unfortunately, I've, I've got to be back in Sydney, so I won't get to see it. But they've just, because it's sold out, it's run before it's even opened at the Fringe. So now they've opened up new shows so you can get go and um, get tickets. Anyway, I'm, I'm hoping that it'll, you know, these shows, like once they get word of mouth and they get going, then hopefully it comes to Sydney and so you get to see it. So I'm hoping that would happen because the rehearsal certainly whet my appetite for it. All right. Mm. Um, so uh, one of my pieces of happy news since I last saw you is that I'm on a triumphant reading jag. Wow. Right? So because Ow. one of... Th- <laughs> <laughs> Pull up a chair, lady friend. Can I just, before you say that, just say your outfit tonight is fantastic. Thank you very much. So you know how you get wardrobe fatigue where you kind of think, oh, this is got nothing to wear. I never throw anything out. Like, I've still got outfits that I had when I was at university because I'm a pack rat. Um, and over the years, I was having babies and I was sort of different shapes at different times. I'd kind of put things away in boxes and then get them out again and whatever. But this skirt I bought a few months ago and I just pulled it out and isn't it great? Yes. And it's a counterintuitive... I wouldn't normally do that um, thing, but... Um, it's very high-waisted and a long skirt. Not something that you would buy as a short woman. No, um, but why not? Because it elongates you. It's good. Right, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that together anyway. Imagine what lady... I'd look like in that. Imagine what Luke Longley would You're look like amazing. in that. Amazing! <laughs> You're not amazing! Anyway, there's this lady who makes clothes around the corner from me in Sydney called Natalia Rashidi, and um, I don't know, I went in there, and she's like, oh, try this on. I'm like, don't be ridiculous, love. And I put it on, I went, oh, God, that was amazing. Anyway, <laughs> there you go. Um, and uh, your friend of mine, Leonard Street, uh, came up with the top. So, all good. Nice. But, you know. Anyway, sorry, you're on a reading No, jag. it's been a bit of a slow week and a bit of a sad week. So, I put on some sparkly things and now good I on feel you. awesome. Well done. Um, so, the reading jag. Mm. So, because we did a show in Perth and a show in Albany, we'd sort of used up all the things that we'd read. Like, you know how we normally wish we're on about, what have you been doing? What have you been reading? We've just had already talked about things. So I've been obsessively reading for the last week going, oh my God, there's 2,000 people coming to Amy Hall. And she's just like, what are we going to do? Pretend to dance move in a beer for 90 minutes. Anyway, so I picked up the new Ian McEwan novel. Oh, right? Oh. And in fact, when I was at the airport in um, Sydney, boarding without you because you were suspended over a tin bucket at home, I uh, picked it up and I went, that's a thick book. That's a lot of Ian McEwan. And frankly, the last few have been a bit screwy. The last few oh, Ian McEwan cool, novels. because you love Ian McEwan. I do. I do. And I even liked the one that was told from the perspective of a fetus. But even I, right? And even oh, I, with my fan glasses on, was a bit Sucked. like, come on, mate. It's like oh. that phase of, you know, Jimi Hendrix's career where he starts playing the guitar behind his back. You're just like, love, don't. Just like, do it properly. <laughs> and the one after the nutshell, I didn't even read. Right. So I looked at it, and sorry, Ian McEwan, but I like went, that's a thick book. I've got a lot of carry-on luggage. I'm sorry, not doing it. And then I I'm read... Just, can I interrupt you? Say, I've just got this like visual of Ian McEwan like, making a pot of tea on a Sunday morning in his to chat beautiful conservatory in London. He's like, oh, but I've listened to that Australian podcast by those two wonderful ladies. Uh, let's whack that on. Oh, how wonderful. She's talking about... What? Oh. Well, I'm about to be 
incredibly nice about his latest book. So can you listening in? in. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> so his new book is called The Lessons. And eventually, like, I bought it in um, e-book format because I read a review of it that made me think, oh, maybe I'll read that. And I started reading it. And then you were with me driving around um, Western Australia and I kept retiring to, oh, yeah. to read it, right? And I finished it really you did. quickly because I couldn't stop. And it's an outstanding book, right? So, and I think that, so the, the book is about um, a character called Roland and he's a sort of, he's a sort of a designed failure to launch guy. Like he is, when you meet him, he's sort of middle-aged and he wanted to be a writer and he sort of is a poet, but he's sort of started a few things and not persisted. He plays piano in a restaurant a couple of days a week and he is raising a son. And what you discover is that his wife, the mother of his baby, walked out on him and the boy when the boy was about seven months old. You're never quite sure why she did it. And the book ranges back and forth over his life and also goes back into the lives of his parents and also his wife's parents. And I can't... I'm going to be bad at explaining why this book is so moving, I think. It started reminding me a little bit of that book Stoner that we talked oh, about yeah. a few years ago by Williams, John Williams, which is the life of an unremarkable man made incredibly profound by the accounts of the relationships that kind of formed and pinched and pushed and shaped him. And this is fascinating in the same way, but it also somehow manages to knit in all of these global events. So, for instance, when he hasn't seen his wife for years and years... He goes to Berlin when the wall's coming down and he, he finds her there. He is, when he's left alone with his baby for the first time, Chernobyl's happening. He, he responds to it by sort of taping up his flat and having this massive response to this threat. And in many ways, the most significant kind of foundation event of his life is when he's sent to boarding school as McEwen was, and this character is born in the same year as McEwen, and like McEwen was sent to this sort of full-on boarding school. And what happens to him at boarding school when he's young is that he has this mysterious piano teacher who physically abuses him, right? Like, he's 14 when this episode occurs. And it's shocking not because of the explicit of the writing, but because you just, like, this woman's 26, he's 14. And the, as a 14-year-old, he's thinking of this as a relationship. And so it is an episode that absolutely influences the rest of his life and his relationships with other people. And I don't know, I, the whole book, I think, felt like an exertion of every single writerly skill mm. that Ian McEwan has ever assembled. Wow, and he's got some. So Right? I mean, it felt like, you know, people talk about a tour de force or whatever. You, but I felt like he was at the height of his powers and using every element of reflection and also the literary references are 
effortless. You know, it's it's an extraordinary piece of work. So I really, yeah. The central character, like how old at this is the central character now at the time of the telling of the... It's, it's not clear uh, because it goes back and forth. So oh. when you first meet him, he's in his sort of 30s with this baby. Right. But then... I mean, you travel back and forth over the entire course of his life. Then you meet him when he's 11. Right. And then, you know, when he's in his 70s. And, oh, yeah. okay. It's, um, and, the, and the thing that I think it really achieves that is, is actually difficult, and, you know, because you read about this episode with the music teacher and it's hard to read because you think, that is not a relationship. This is an abuse that's happening. But also you think, well, this is in the 1960s, Right. And somehow McEwen has managed to preserve, at each point of history, the sensibility and attitudes of the time. And that's an extraordinary thing to be able to do as a writer, I think, is to yeah. be able to zip back and forth through history and not only, you know, fold these events into world events. I mean, what, what actually prompts this first incident between teacher and student is that the Cuban Missile Crisis is happening and he's 14 and he thinks he's about to die because the world's about to blow up, right? So sort of caution to the wind sort of thing. And so it's a confronting thing to read because, of course, today we would look back at that and think that's just a disgraceful, you know, I don't know, I'm explaining this badly. But then it takes him, as is um, often the case, decades to realise what was actually going on, you know? Yeah, yeah. right. And that, that was, you know, a clear-cut episode of abuse. It's interesting that it's utterly different, but it fits a little bit with something that I've read recently, which is, like, say, Ian McEwan offering that, like, you know, work of art into the world, uh, you know, and I don't mean art like capital A art, I mean just, you know, his, his art, as any artist offers their work. You have to kind of be liberated to do that without thinking of how you're going to be judged or is it going to offend people? Are you going to, is your career going to be cancelled or, you know, whatever? You have to kind of write and express what you want. Waleed Ali and Scott Stevens have written this, the latest quarterly essay, which is called Uncivil Wars, How Contempt is Eroding Democracy. And it's kind of talking about just the public space at the moment and the way that we tend to interpret other people's work, other people's views and so on. And their general premise is that the chief emotion currently driving public discussion and debate is contempt and people's contempt for others who hold views that differ to them. Um, And so what they do is kind of unpack all of the different kinds of contempt that there are um, and that are evident and they talk about the corrosive effect that that has because contempt is such a personally judgmental emotion to have about somebody because you're not just saying oh well I disagree with your view on that you know whoever you are but I don't judge you in a moral sense but once you have contempt for somebody's view you are judging them basically in a moral sense and so their argument is that once you move into that kind of a space, then it's really anti-democratic and bad for democracy. Um, and they 
kind of right as well about how social media amplifies that and rewards that because things that push people's buttons, you know, tend to get more clicks and so on. And so that is like this kind of self-fulfilling sort of prophecy. But don't you think contempt is a bit of a shorthand? Like if you can, if you can organise people and think, well, I have contempt for what you think because of, you know, where I think you fit, then that's a quick way of dealing with people, right? I mean, it takes longer to be... Well, that's what they argue. So they, what they say basically is what we've got, quoting from their book, the end result is cowing people into silence, not consensus. It's moralism without any of the hard work of persuasion. Because once you just dismiss somebody and you go, oh, well, you're a Scott Morrison voter or you're an Anthony Albanese voter, so you're worthless, um, you're dumb. Like, the, the best example, of course, is Hillary Clinton calling all the Trump voters deplorables. Like, that, that is a contemptuous remark and so of course those people feel you know hurt by that assessment of them in a kind of moral sense and so and it's a quicker thing to respond to than, than a complex yeah, case and so then well. it kind of goes and then so then they have contempt for her and so on so it goes from there Ow. The, <laughs> the other thing that was interesting was they talked about this american study where they were saying that it found that the most extreme, aggressive and least representative, representative political voices on either side of the political divide are the ones that dominate the debate. So when you're reading like, oh, outrageous reaction to, you know, whatever Peter Fitzsimon said or whoever, the voices that are being reported are the most, you know, extreme ones. And so they say, accordingly, the ideals and definitions of vice by which people are condemned are likely to be ones the mainstream population's population considers flawed, fringe, or overly pure. And moreover, since people gain status in online debates through this condemnation of others, there is an incentive to make these ideals ever more unrealistic, because then that way you can trap people and then whip up, you know, social media frenzy. One of the... Um, the bits of research in it that I just found absolutely staggering was that there was a study that found that people who were cheering for Mitt Romney to win the US election were found by researchers to be twice as sad in the wake of Barack Obama's election victory than Bostonians were after the Boston Marathon bombing. Can you believe that? Like, so that's the level of what our politics has sunk to that, that people well, I can, are seeing. I can understand that guy who got Mitt Romney tattooed on his face, that he would be quite sad. <laughs> I often wonder what happened to that guy. Do you remember him? Like, he got like that sort of Kirby oh. R flag thing oh. tattooed on his actual face. You'd have to get it, you know, what could you turn it into? I don't know. I mean, it'd be like, you know, Johnny Depp with, you know, remember he did Winona Forever and then oh, he changed yeah. it into Wino Forever? Totally. <laughs> Prophetically enough. But I don't know what you'd get a flowy R sort so, of um, change to. So the other thing is, and this is what brings me back to Ian McEwan, um, is you can only have... You know, say if I'm interviewing somebody, the way for me to have a genuine conversation with people is for them to feel that I'm not judging them and that I'm genuinely interested in what they've got to say. So talking about like Shane Warne, for example, you go into that and just like, well, I'm just actually interested in you as a human being and I'm not judging what you're speaking and thinking about, you know, oh, well, you did this, you did that. I'm just actually curious to know, you know, what kind of makes you tick. And his perspective was, hello, Lee, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm reading this book, um, Faith, Hope and Carnage by Nick Cave and Sean O'Hagan. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, no, um, Nick this. Cave's touring later this year for anyone who's a Nick Cave um, fan. Because she's plugged in. She just knows yeah, that just, stuff's cause happening. Because I'm, I'm cool. Ibiza. The Ibiza dance moves, the Nick Cave tours. Come to me for the Fringe Festival sellout shows. 
come to me, people. I'm your girl. Um, anyway, so Nick Cave's written, uh, it, it's, it's a, a book, Nick Cave and Sean O'Hagan, Faith, Hope and Carnage. It's a conversation, basically. It's a transcript of a conversation. Sean O'Hagan's a journalist, I think, for The Times. They've clearly known each other a long time and they're friends, and they disagree on quite a lot of stuff, but they have respectful disagreements. And because the conversation is conducted in a, an environment of... I, as a human being, am interested in you as a human being, and I'm not scanning all the time for, you know, things that you want to say that's going to offend me or microaggressions or whatever. I, it, there's this real spirit of openness, and what that leads to then is genuine vulnerability and authenticity in the exchange. So I just wanted to read you one bit of it. I hope I can because it's very moving and I hope it doesn't make me cry, but... So they're talking about, um, they talk about all sorts of interesting things, like Nick Cave's actually, you know, very religious, um, and so they talk a lot about that, and they talk about music and making music and create the creative process, and Nick's relationship with his wife and his mother and all the rest of it. Anyway, they get to talking about, obviously, Nick's son, Arthur, dying, and Nick's talking about, I don't know if anyone reads The Red Hand Files, which I've talked about before, which is people write to Nick Cave and he just, you know, chats back. Um, and he talks about, you know, the fans basically, you know, saved my life, um, the way that, you know, people responded and what you remember ultimately are the acts of kindness. And Sean says, yes, the small things that people say or do are often the things that stay with you. Nick says, so true, the small but monumental gesture. There's a vegetarian takeaway place in Brighton called Infinity, where I would eat sometimes. I went there the first time I'd gone out in public after Arthur had died. There was this woman who worked there and I was always friendly with her, just the normal pleasantries, but I liked her. I was standing in the queue and she asked me what I wanted and it felt a little bit strange because there was no acknowledgement of anything. She treated me like anyone else, matter-of-factly, professionally. She gave me my food and I gave her the money and, oh sorry, it's quite hard to talk about this, as she gave me back my change, she squeezed my hand, purposefully. It was such a quiet act of kindness, the most simple and articulate of gestures, but at the same time, it meant more than all that anybody had tried to tell me, you know, because of the failure of language in the face of catastrophe. She wished the best for me in that moment, and there was something truly moving to me about that simple, wordless act of compassion. Sean says, such a beautifully instinctive and understated gesture. And Nick says, yes, exactly, I'll never forget that. In the difficult times, I often go back to that feeling that she gave me. Human beings are remarkable, really. Such nuanced, subtle creatures. And then they go on to talking about, you know, did writing songs help you work your way through the grief and trauma and so on. Now, you cannot get a conversation like that with a human being if you are coming to it with any level of judgment. Like, you have to make people feel accepted. And I think that's one of the big problems that we have at the moment that there's not very many spaces for people to have a conversation like that and to show that degree of vulnerability and so it's a really wonderful book and I think one of the points Nick Cave makes is that people you know just grief is a super hard thing to talk about people find it really difficult um, and so there's not very much language about it. and one of the things he's trying to do is talk about it and he talks about how much the red hand files is full of people sending him questions like you know do things get better and what happens and so he wants to talk about this stuff because it's really affected him and his the album that he brought out, Ghost Teen, which they weren't able to tour, um, you know, because they got stuck at home like everybody else, that 
you know, he said he felt like that was so a part of the process of what had happened to him and so it was very disappointing for him to not be able to do that. So it's awesome that he's able to now, you know, go out and be with people and, and so on. I think he's a really remarkable person. I'm not a massive fan of his music, actually, but I think he is Ooh, actually... the mood turns. He is, <laughs> he is actually a very interesting and, I think, intelligent and uh, empathetic human being. Just when you were talking about that story, it made me remember one of the most powerful Raymond Carver short stories I ever read, and it was one of um, a, a few that ended up being part of that movie, that Robert Altman movie called Shortcuts, which was, you know, I must be ancient by now, but it's, I mean, it's a hard one to read because it's a terrible story. It's a short story about... Um, Parents who, oh my God, now I'm going to cry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, wow. Oh, okay. Sorry. Like we are about to swing the mood in a minute. But before that, <laughs> let's go deep. <laughs> um, about uh, you parents... Just, if, if you need a safe word, make it Ibiza dance move. And, and I will segue <laughs> no, 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 seamlessly right. into the Ibiza <laughs> reason that we're all here. <laughs> it's an incredibly beautiful Raymond Carver story about parents whose son is killed in a car accident. Like he's knocked over on his bike and his birthday is coming up and they've booked, uh, they've ordered a cake from a baker. And the son goes into hospital, it's terrible, life support, he dies, they're devastated. They forget all about the cake, of course, and the birthday and the whatever. And the baker is this sort of unhappy dude, he's pissed off that this, these people have ordered this cake and then, you know, peremptorily refused to pick it up or, like, just, just forgotten about it and he's put all this work in and not been paid. And so he sends them these messages, calls them or, you know, and they're, of course, incredibly traumatised by this and they go to the bakery at 5am and they confront him. And, I mean... Wow. <laughs> it's... I mean, it's an incredible piece of writing. It's highly... Yeah, and what happens is that they each realise each other's positions and they, he just says to them, I don't even know what to say to you. I have nothing. I'm so sorry. Will you accept some warm bread that I just made? And so they sit down and they eat this bread mm. and it's this sort of incredible, it's this redemptive moment and it is a bit beyond words really because there is nothing that you can do to fix things sometimes, you know, things are unfixable. And this sort of tiny gesture of warm bread just reminds me of the hand squeeze, actually, just yeah. where, you know, um, conflict and misunderstanding is unbridgeable except by everybody just laying down their weapons, right? Yeah. And just going, fuck. Which is the is, words this often. Is, right. This is, this is a shocking thing. I, like, going to swing the mood in a minute. Um, <laughs> But one of the other just incredible books that I read in a panic this week going, I don't have enough books to talk about, is a book called All That Was Left Unsaid by Tracy Lian. And I, it's a first novel and it is unbelievable. So it's set in Cabramatta and the principal character is a young woman whose son, uh, whose brother has been murdered and it's happened at a restaurant, hundreds of people there, nobody saw anything. It's sort of gang-related, it's sort of set in the 90s, big sort of heroin gangs and stuff. And she goes around trying to find out what happened to her brother. 
And what the book turns into is this quite extraordinary examination of her family's experiences as refugees to Australia, to Sydney, to Cabramatta, and the impact that their experiences and their hopes have had on the generation of teenagers that are trying to make their way, you know, in this country. And I can't... It, it's an extraordinarily moving piece of work. I mean, it's very gripping. The storyline is... Um, it's very sticky, but it's also one of the most... One of the most skilled portrayals I've read of this intergenerational power of experience and the way... So like the McEwen... Right, exactly. Yeah. I actually read it after the lessons and thought there's so many parallels. And there's this extraordinary scene where the girl, Key, her name is, um, and she's actually living in Melbourne at the time of the... And she's working at the Herald Sun as a cadet. <laughs> and she goes back for her brother's funeral and no one can tell her what happened. All that she knows is that he was beaten to death in this restaurant on the night of his school formal and she has no idea what's happened. And there's this moment where she tracks down her brother's best friend and she says, we surely you saw something. And he, like everybody else there, said, no, I was in the toilet at the time. I didn't, um, I've got to turn my phone on to silent, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Real pro. <laughs> and he says, no, I didn't see anything, I didn't see anything, I didn't see anything. And then eventually he says, listen, I didn't see anything because hypothetically if I had seen something, I would have to confess to you that I didn't do anything while this was happening and that would be a shameful thing for me. And I would also have to tell my parents that this catastrophic thing had happened and that all the sacrifices that they made to give up everything in their lives, to come here to make a perfect life for me, weren't enough. Ugh. Anyway, it's, um, I, you know, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary piece of work. I highly recommend it. It's, um, it's not a super long read, but it's a super powerful one. All that was left unsaid, it's called. And okay, now... It feels like I should talk about Ibiza. <laughs> it does! <laughs> Okay, can we, do, Duncan, can, can, we we just, give can we get that music back yeah. up again? Come just on, give come us on. a hit. Yeah. Swing the mood. Yeah. <laughs> this was what the tutorial said. It did, but then we're, I'm not sure if we actually saw the right tutorial because it was a bit like, it actually just looked like pissed 80s dancing, which, you know. And the other thing is, like... Thank you, Duncan. Is anyone ever comfortable in a club? I don't think I could name one time in my life where I've ever been comfortable in a nightclub. I just think... Like Look at fish on a bicycle. I'm just like, I'm really <laughs> pretending that I'm comfortable here, but I'm not. So um, I can't hear you. What? <laughs> yeah. Oh yes. No. Exactly. Yep. So <laughs> I just don't even know. She's like, oh, I've got a really good thing to say about Ibiza and clubs. I'm like, hey, I know you. You have not been to a club in Ibiza. If you went to Ibiza. You would be in bed by nine. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure none of those clubs get going any time before then. I reckon it's pretty safe to say that before I die, I will not go to Ibiza. 
<laughs> it is like, what's the like reverse of your of a bucket list? Because <laughs> going to a club. Someone a, come on, wordsmiths. There must be a great reverse of the bucket list. Yeah, because like, going to a club in a beef. That's the what? Hang on. Bucket list. A fucking bucket, bucket list. list. <laughs> Brilliant. I feel like we can just go home now after that. Um, Actually, do you want to come up here and just finish this? (laughs) Going to a a club in Ibiza, that would be close to my idea of, like, the least things I'd like to do, along with, like, outdoor folk music festival. Like, that kind of... I hate... Lisa Miller, who's here tonight, had to come with me one year to the Woodford Folk Festival. Oh, I was about to say Woodford. Oh, It's just, you are losing support here. I just like, there's not much I can do for your friends. It's everything I hate. It's hot, it's sweaty, it's... Not proper toilets? No proper toilets. It's just... Ugh. Anyway. <laughs> wow. Lisa jollied me through that one. I had to go because the late Michael... <laughs> That's harsh but fair, I think. <laughs> This the is lady who recently packed a toilet roll for a long distance drive. So <laughs> the late, obviously she's flexible on the toilet issue. Lisa really took one for the team on that occasion because the late Michael Gadinsky had asked me for numerous years would I go and interview him. And f- the final time that he asked me, he'd landed for me in the space of 12 months, Paul McCartney and Elton John. And then he rang me and said, look, Woodford Folk Festival, they keep wanting me to come and be interviewed about my career and all the great, you know, musicians I've met and adventures I've had, and, but I'll only do it if you do it, and I'll do it any year that you'll do it. It's like, oh, that's dirty pool. I'm free any year. You choose. Yes. So I agreed, of course. Um, And so I was just dreading it as it got closer and closer and closer and just bitching. So wait, you got a free ticket to, like, this? Well, I mean, I didn't utilise it, obviously. I just went in for the thing with Michael. So you had your helicopter just drop you in (laughs) in a full-body condom. Anyway, I was just... (laughs) So you didn't have to interact with any hippie types. Lisa's like, I'm loving this! (laughs) I love how I've just given a whole lecture about not having contempt for people. You so have! Wow! Judgy much? I'd been I'd been bitching Blue Murder about having to go. At least at Lisa oh. had volunteered. She was like, "Look, I'll come with you, and we'll take the kids, and we'll make a day out of it." And she brought her niece, and I had my kids. She really took one for the team. Although she liked she going was to stuff loving like that. It, so yeah, she loves that stuff. Anyway, she loves um, that sort of thing. We kept in the car. I was what she just, just said. Bitching Blue Murder, and we got to the front, and they didn't know where we had to go, and so I was just getting matter and matter. Anyway, the, the kids, because I'd been going on Where's in the Where's my driver? The little kids go, James is going, Mum, is that one of the dirty hippies? It was just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You this are is... the worst, Burr. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that Waleed was railing against. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Is Waleed on your side here? I honestly think Here's my message. I accept people who like Woodford. I'm happy for them. I don't like going to Woodford, but please have at. I don't think it needs to be closed down. I don't think it needs to be condemned and cancelled. I just don't want to be part of it myself. (laughs) Anyway, so because I'm a... I don't know how we got down that rabbit hole, but... Oh, you took us here, baby. Like, we're here under your leadership. (laughs) 
<laughs> because, because I'm a middle-aged lady on long service leave, I've been doing a lot of deep diving into the clubs of Ibiza. <laughs> so, the New Yorker, which actually, I cancelled my subs subscription to a few years ago because I just didn't kind of like, they just, they weren't writing stuff that, that, that I kind of liked. Dirty hippies. <laughs> What my favourite kind of New Yorker article is where they do a deep dive on something that I just was not aware even existed and they do like 25,000 words on this particular subculture or strange thing and you're like, wow, I had no idea that even existed. And so this Mind is you, it. sometimes there's things that you've never heard of that everybody else in the world has well. heard of. So you're like... <laughs> True. <laughs> so this piece, I reckon it's What's just one of... Lego thing? You know, everybody's like, <laughs> I reckon, that has it's, happened. I reckon it's one of the all-time New Yorker greats. It was called Solomon, the DJ who keeps Ibiza dancing. And so Solomon is the world's top club DJ. And so he mixed that music that we walked onto. It's a track called Late Finally. Night. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 that was a big, a lot of foreplay, wasn't it? For, for a kind of middling climax. Yeah, no, it's just like, wow. Should we wait another 10 minutes and try again? <laughs> Someone got a cigarette, please. <laughs> so uh, Solomon's this guy. So he he DJs at this club called Pasha. It's probably not even called DJing, is it? It's probably called something different. But you're he, totally exposing he, your. Can I actually? Can I ask? Is there anyone in this room who knows anything about dance music? Yes. Okay, that's fantastic. One. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. So you might be able to help out as I try to explain. You're the brains this, trust, right? love. Stay sharp. Yep, so just you keep, you keep on your toes. Um, so he plays at this club called Pasha in Ibiza, and he plays, like, for kind of a month or whatever. And so every other club on Ibiza, when they know that Solomon has got the residency at Pasha, they just don't really bother to program anything because everyone is going to where this guy is. He is the most sought-after club music guy in the world. How big is Pasha? Like, How big is Solomon? Oh, somewhere between me and Luke Longley. <laughs> But I mean, Pasha can everybody... takes 3,000 people. 3,000 people can fit in there. Well, this is like 2,400, so it's like this group of people and some others. And can I just ask, have you heard of Solomon? Oh, okay. oh yeah, she so totally he's, has. He's like super famous, right? Yeah, okay. So... <laughs> just and just might... lower your glasses on your nose a little bit like that. That would be great. Because, like, you're already doing it a bit with your bifocals. Multifocals, sorry. <laughs> And um, am I pronouncing the gentleman's name correctly? <laughs> because it could be Solomon. It's Solomon. Okay, great. Whew. I didn't want my credibility to go as an expert on the dance clubs of Ibiza. Oh, yeah, because... So, um, Pasha takes 3,000 people. Um, it's 70 euro to get in. If you want to be at the front in the vicinity of Solomon, it is 20,000 euro. Yeah, it's... Unbelievable. And then Solomon sometimes will invite someone to be like on the deck with him, and that is a highly, highly sought after thing. Um, sometimes he will allow someone to mix with him, and he has like a kind of deputy who'll swap in for a few sessions, and you have to audition to get that role. He passed on Idris Elba. He was like, mate, I love your work, don't like your mixes. And so 
he passed on him. So, um, but this is the kind of, um, like, it was just one of those things where the detail of it in The New Yorker was just so beautiful. So the truly elect, so these are the people who get to go on the deck with Solomon. The truly elect are invited to take an occasional shot of tequila with Solomon. The brand on his rider is, I don't know how to pronounce this, but something like Classe Azul Reposado, which the club brings in specifically for him. Solomon sometimes drinks more than 30 shots of tequila during a night on the decks with no visible change in his sobriety. <laughs> and so the journo follows him around for the whole season. And so it's he, the journo is clearly... Not a bad gig, right? Like, imagine you're working at the New Yorker, like, oh, think peace on... <laughs> or you could go to a beat... Yeah. Why don't we do that? He was exhausted by the end. Anyway, another beautiful bit of detail. So this is a flight with um, Solomon. On this flight, so he's on private jets, of course, because he has paid a fortune. On this flight, he carried with him a wheelie suitcase and a bag filled with pillows, blankets and clothespins. Solomon requires total darkness to sleep and the 10 minutes before he goes to bed are often spent pinning together curtains in his hotel room. <laughs> anyway, it was riveting and so then of course I went and I had... love that you're particularly drawn to the sleeping bit <laughs> just like clothespins you say mm, blankets so uh, so then I went and had a listen to the music because I'm not a like great lover it's not I mean I've got a pretty as we all know eclectic you know, ow. Ow. <laughs> music taste but I'm not really a dance music person, but I thought, okay, I'm going to listen to it. Because what the article made clear, and I'm sure you'll know this, is that they were saying, like, people who actually are into this, it's like people that are into classical music, which is that you understand it to a level... Just going to our experts, She's not is that in. right? Are you not Correct. Okay. Right. okay. You understand it to a level that, you know, a mere mortal is not listening and going, you know, well, I'll listen to this and listen to that and whatever. So oh, it's just noise, isn't it? It's not music, it's just noise. Yeah. So I had to listen to it, and I thought... Okay, the first thing is, the beats... I listened to five tracks. The beats... Generous of you. <laughs> the beats... The Did beats, you then make a tent out of blankets and clothes pegs? <laughs> just like... Pinned it <laughs> I then had 30 shots of tequila. <laughs> <laughs> just got massively off your tits and yeah, then... <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> and so Went tonight... Back to your banking job in London. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so... Again, like you tell me if I'm right. What it sounds like to me is... I'm sorry, i just got to apologise because, like, you aren't really a, assuming a pivotal role <laughs> in, like, corroborating this woman's account, having read one long read. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're helpless because we can't hear you, so all you can do is nod and <laughs> confirm her in her worst prejudices. And I just want you to know that I and 2,299 people in this room absolutely appreciate the position you're in and thank you for your cooperation. <laughs> and if you, like, should we set up a panic hand signal? Like, if you just do this, like... <laughs> if, if we're railroading you into something that you're not comfortable with, please make that signal and I'll, I'll deal so with it. The first thing to note Continue. is... Continue. <laughs> the first thing to note is the beats are conducive to dancing, right? Because oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> just like... Can I just... <laughs> Sports, Luke Longley. <laughs> <laughs> a 
Australia's premier current affairs journalist, ladies and gentlemen. A trained observer. Yeah. No, because is it true that you're a doctor now? <laughs> so, you know, like I've, I'm sure we've all had the experience at the school dance of where you're dancing and it's a good song, but then a song comes on and it's either if you try to move in half time, it's too slow, but if you try to keep on time, it's too fast, right? So Solomon's beats, they're good. You can definitely get a groove on. Now, what it reminded me of was making a bed. Imagine if Solomon's, <laughs> imagine if Solomon's <laughs> listening to this with Ian McEwan, like at the same, just like. Imagine, <laughs> they probably share a house together. Ian's like making the tea, like Solomon. Oh, he's not up yet. <laughs> I've got 29 more shots to go before. <laughs> oh, he's not up. He was up all night. He'll have to listen to it tonight. Um, so, it's like they start with like the bed. And then they put like a flat sheet on, and then they put two pillows on, then one person, then they take one pillow off, then they put a doona on, then they put on another person, then they take off two pillows. Like it's this real layered, like. <laughs> it's it, don't you think that's right? The expert is fully agreeing with me. Is this That's what um, it reminded me of. Is this called the Manchester sound? <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's so it does start. Thank you. Oh God! What Love is it called? Night. Is it called the Manchester I knew sound? You'd... No. What? <laughs> what? I'm getting confused. I oh, just like. Do I really have to explain this to you? No, I get oh, it. My, oh, yeah, yeah right. I get it. Yeah, we but, all get it. But so it's like it actually does get um, strangely. <laughs> oh it is a little bit. I've reached the holding my own breasts <laughs> stage of the evening. <laughs> just like, oh. See, now that you're holding your own, now that you're holding your own breasts, the second climax is probably going to be. <laughs> I feel like I'm in better hands, frankly. <laughs> um, no, so it's like, it does get strangely hooky because you, so firstly, it's hypnotic because the same basic thing is going, looping over and over again, right? So it's hypnotic. Then it is kind of interesting because they just keep adding, and it's actually quite sparse music. It's not very busy. It's kind of sparse. So you can definitely hear when new layers of stuff come in. So I actually thought I could definitely appreciate the skill of it. I'm not saying that I'm going to be heading off to a beaker anytime soon, <laughs> but I was like, yeah, I can appreciate you, Solomon. Well played. <laughs> we've been on a super journey and also like we haven't had to offload or buy any tickets to Ibiza so this is like a very reasonably anyway go and go google it Solomon the DJ who keeps Ibiza dancing if you'd like to know more I was hoping actually that this story would turn into a sort of train accident kind of oh my god disaster on Ibiza because like I think after you know remember the um, fire you know fire festival oh, yeah. thing that we watched and just delighted in the horror of it. I mean, like, actually, just thinking back over the last few years, which, of course, have been epically full of horror, I can't think of a more pleasurable hour or whatever it was than I spent than when I watched that fire Festival doco. It was just like, it was just 
the glory of watching just a profound fuck up, like, that, that didn't really damage anybody. Like, I mean, there's just been so many awful things that have happened that have been actually, you know, damaging to people that to watch something so splendiferously stupid go horribly wrong and have nobody maimed, but just everybody be able to enjoy, you know, this terrible calamity was just like, yeah, I don't know what it says about me, but I really love that. And, um, and I not long ago watched that um, Woodstock documentary called, like, which is called Trainwreck. And I must say, I sort of, which is about the 99, was it? Woodstock sort of revival um, festival. No, it wasn't 99, it was 2019. I, was it 99? Sorry, friends, I just, you know, the passage of time. <laughs> it eludes me. Um, and I thought, this is going to be a sort of a fire rip-off kind of thing, trying to make a music event kind of sound as disastrous as the fire thing. But wow, it really was. And I can't remember what I was doing in 1999. I can't even recall it. It was my first year working in the press gallery, so I guess I was busy or something. But, um, but wow, that's a three-part doco about this festival that was so shocking and I didn't really realise at the time A that it was even happening or B that it was it went so disastrously wrong. Probably because it was pre social media and just the start of news websites on the internet. Right. So we probably didn't have it reported yeah. in Australia. So many disasters to be unpicked in retrospect. I mean, it's like, essentially, it's podcasting. For some um, reason, I haven't wanted to watch that. I'm not quite sure what's putting me off. Really? Yeah, it just feels really interesting. Is it? Yeah. Okay. And the most interesting thing about it, I love this lady in the front row. She's just like, oh, my God. (laughs) Like, she's touching her head now. She's like, oh, you're right. I mean, it's amazing. It's a a proper train wreck. And the interesting thing about it, and with sort of, you know, more than 20 years hindsight, is watching these people talking about um, planning this festival, and it was supposed to be a re-celebration of Woodstock, and, but they, they held it in a different place, in a sort of like an old kind of defence site. So it was a bit like, slightly different vibe. <laughs> um, and the programmers, they just programmed all of these super amped up dude bands. So it's sort of like Limp Biscuit and um, who else was there? I wrote it down because I... Chili Peppers, although they're not in the documentary, interestingly enough. You can hardly any mention of them. And Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit is available for interviews, so he becomes absolutely the villain of the piece. Because essentially what happens over the, like, however many days it is, there's not enough water. By the end of it, they're selling bottles of water for, like, 14 bucks. So he's the villain of the piece. Oh, well, I mean, essentially, the crowd that shows up is this, like, amped-up dudes who are just looking for getting totally messed up Fred, and getting Fred Durst was presumably as much a victim as... Because he wasn't the person responsible for organising the portaloos. No, so. but on stage he's doing a lot of, like, whipping up, like, you know, and eventually people are just setting fires to all of the, like, you know, towers and it turns into a complete debacle. But it is a really good lesson in programming, to be honest, because, like, <laughs> I mean, sorry, is it just me? But, like, benefit of hindsight and all, but... It's, it's such a dude-centred piece of programming. You're just like, oh, amazing that all of these pissed guys would turn up and try and fight each other when you program this lineup. I feel like we're giving some bad PR tonight to music festivals. No. Well, I mean, I mean you know, Fat Boy Slim was there too. Metallica, Chili Peppers. I mean, you're getting the idea. 
right? Um, I wrote that all down because I couldn't remember any of them. But um, look, I think we can all agree that music festivals are wonderful. And we've possibly... The classical music ones are Oh my marvellous. God. <laughs> uh, can I swing the mood a little and just talk about another revival that I've had in the last week and a bit, which has been a very exciting one? I've had a cooking revival. Oh. 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 Can we hear the whole room go, oh. oh. Can we just, can you One, all do it? Two, oh. three. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect, guys. Thank you very much. Um, so I've been in a massive cooking slump. I've just gotten to one of those things where you go, what is it that I make? I can think of four things. Which of them shall I make tonight? It's not a good place to be. And anyway, somebody sent me, well, a publisher sent me Karen Martini's new book, which is about this thick, and it's called Food. And it arrived, and I looked at it and I thought, it's so big. I can barely lift it. And I felt a bit like, I'll look at that when I'm strong enough. I, I got it too and to, put it aside to for lift. that reason. Right. So, when I go back from WA, and because when we were away, we um, cooked some marron together. We cooked marron together, people. And it was a very elemental affair because they were live when we got them. And so we... Like it was, I went and did know. my cello practice yeah, while that's this right. part of it. I took care of it. And then I kind of got a bit excited about cooking because they were delicious. They were amazing. Yeah. That was beautiful. And then I came home and I cracked open that book and I have... It is covered with post-it notes and I've been completely immersed in it ever since. It is a terrific piece of work. And actually I felt about this book having gone through it, it's about 900 pages long, I'm not even making that up, it's big. And it starts off with stocks. Here's the stocks, right? Every different kind of stock, vegetable, beef, veal, chicken, different kinds of chicken, you know. And then reduced stocks, velouté's, you know. And then dressings, beurre blanc, how do you make it? It is how. And so, I'm just, I read on and I just thought, this is everything that I've ever Googled in one book. And it also is, I think, kind of the life's work of Karen Martini, whose recipes I've always oh, really enjoyed. beautiful. This book is like a distillation of everything she's ever learned about cooking, and it's bloody amazing. So I worked through it, and, there's, and then it goes into different ingredients and whatever. And I know you're all thinking it, you're thinking... Is this supposed to be supplanting the Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Bible? Is that what you're thinking? Because when I picked it up, I thought, is that what's going on? And I'll tell you what, A, it isn't. It's totally different. But B, she's obviously thought people are going to think this. So she's name-checked Stephanie and said, look, you know, this is a Bible in my house and, you know... I obviously, like everybody else who cooks in Australia, owe a debt to Stephanie Alexander. And then Stephanie has written a little, like a little, oh. you know, forwardy thing saying, this is amazing. So you immediately feel like, Stephanie says I can read this. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, I immediately cooked about five things out of it. I made banya cowder, which I've never made before because it what was... What is that? It's like this sort of... Oh, you'd hate it because it's like a... It's... it's 
oil, butter, anchovy, and garlic, sort of all heated up to be this slurry, and then you... Oh, no, you wouldn't hate it because it hasn't got capers in it yeah, yet. Yeah, sounds all right. I right. then added capers to it, though, so... Uh, yeah, you would have yeah. hated it from then on. But... So I made that. I made six litres of chicken stock immediately after reading um, that recipe. Uh, I made a, a grape and cucumber salad with huge amounts of herbs, which was delicious. Anyway, it's full of stuff and tips, and I just thought, this is a cookbook that completes me. It's sensational. Anyway, it's not cheap. It's like 100 bucks, And it is so worth it because it is a person's life's work and observations of a whole field of cooking. And she ranges back and forth over different cuisines, which is, you know... It's a dicey thing, right? Like when you borrow from the cuisines of other cultures, like, and she acknowledges where various styles and recipes come from. I feel like it's quite a respectful work and it's, it feels like a complete work of her life and her heritage and her cooking. Hmm. And at the same time, oh, at the same time, <laughs> I was also reading another book that does almost reflects the same spirit, but in a totally different way. I also opened up um, Hattie McKinnon's new book. So this book is called Tender Heart, and it is about her father. And on this book, she's credited as Hattie Louis McKinnon, which is incorporating her dad's name. And it's this book that is full of incredible recipes, but they are all kind of gathered around the memory of her father who died when she was in her teens. And it's the most moving... I mean, it's hard to really describe a cookbook as moving, right? But it is full of love and memory and pain as well. Like, it's... You can tell that it cost her a lot to write it, but there's... It's almost like a eulogy, this book. Um, it's completely beautiful, and it's full of little skeins of recollection and significance. And, like, one recipe that really caught my eye was... and. Obviously, it's not one of the most important recipes in the book, but there's a recipe called Food Court Omelette. Uh-huh. And it's a recipe for this omelette that she and her husband used to eat, like, in Chinatown before they went to the theatre, and she later found out that the food court that they ate it in was across the road from where her father first lived in an apartment when he first came to Sydney. And... It looks and sounds delicious, like fluffy omelette with gravy and a pile of rice and sautéed vegetables. There's something about the way that she writes about that food and connects it back to her father and her life that makes the book just this beautiful read. Anyway. Look, I'm going to say something controversial, which is when I'm looking at a recipe book, I don't really want to read that many stories. (laughs) I just want the recipes. But look, it's not... It's not like she's carrying on and on. It's just like... Is it like if it's just like one paragraph in a recipe... It's one paragraph, Lee Sales. <laughs> wow. I have it loved is, all of her cookbooks, it is, I should say. It, but, like, the thing that I like about Hetty is... And I think I like this about Karen, too, is both of them feel 
Like they're so curious in the way that they cook. So they don't feel restricted by, you know, well, this is where my family is from, so I'm okay to cook this, but I don't borrow from that. And I think that there's like a big discussion to be had about who's entitled to do the borrowing because that doesn't always happen. Hetty is a great example, I think, of somebody who really borrows in this beautiful kind of borrower way and then because of her innate skill and her ability to kind of just ignore boundaries she just makes incredible stuff like sorry I'm babbling I know um I mean her last recipe book had Vegemite ramen noodles in it which are like yeah completely delicious yeah they're quite eclectic like there's one yeah. I forget which one it is might be neighborhood but there's re- in the back there's desserts and it'll be like chocolate mousse but then the other recipes will be you know shiitake mushrooms with something like it's quite it's not like you could go oh it's an Asian cookbook or it's a blah blah cookbook because they're themed around they're not themed around um well the one the three that I've got community family and neighborhood they're not themed around a type of cuisine they're themed around an idea like of feeding a family or you know things that you could share with your neighbors or stuff like that yeah and they're all about feeding people so they're all about you know doing lovely food for people that you love but anyway I I really I enjoyed both of them reading them both in the same week because I thought well these are two people who are drawing down on not only their own lifetimes of experience just being super interested in food, but also lifetimes of the people that went before them. So anyway. Now, um, if you'll excuse me, I've got some heavy duty Melbourne clubbing to do. Really? Have you? No, you haven't. No, I haven't. But hey, before we go, um, wrap up. Just oh, oh, so you're just going to ruin my nice. I am because like it was was a bit sudden. Um, But also, uh, (laughs) while we're doing the party thing, can I just you know thank you all for coming because um, God, you had so many options and you came here to watch (laughs) a pair of just sentimental quasi-retirees just crap on for 90 minutes, some of them unforgivably about musical festivals and so on, but it's a party mood. Um, can I do a big shout out to Platinum Chatter, Beck McCallenden, who's here this evening, turning 30, yeah, bringing down our average age. <laughs> Woo! And thank you, Melbourne, for just embracing us. It's been fun. Hopefully we'll be back next arms. year. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Duncan, can we get that tune back up again? I think we're going to dance out. We're going to dance out. We're going to well, dance out. If you insist. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.